Well, this morning we are starting a new sermon series in the book of Galatians. And so this morning we're going to look at Galatians chapter 1, just the first five verses. Galatians 1, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God, our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever Amen. Well, we celebrated another Valentine's Day this past week, and I was on Valentine's Day, which was Wednesday, I think. I was glad that I was reminded what day it was because one of the ladies who works in our office had a dozen flowers delivered to her, and I thought, oh my, this is Valentine's Day. And I realized that I had scheduled myself to basically be busy at work all day long and all evening long. So my only hope to show my wife how much I love her was to take her out for lunch. We had a really nice time at Sheets. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. You know, it's amazing in a culture that still celebrates love and marriage as it does, that no matter how much our culture departs from, abandons, denigrates God's original design for marriage, they still can't deny the abundant evidence for its goodness and beauty. Brad Wilcox is a professor at the University of Virginia, and recently he wrote a book. The title of the book is Get Married. And in that book, he summarizes some of the recent studies that have been done on marriage, and this is one of the conclusions he, said, he made. He said, marital quality is far and away the top predictor I have run across of life satisfaction in America. Now, let me read that to you again, just to let it sink in. Marital quality is far and away the top predictor I have run across of life satisfaction in America. He goes on to say that when it comes to predicting overall happiness, a good marriage is far more important than how much education you get, how much money you make, how often you have sex, or even how satisfied you are with your work. And yet, we are witnessing a culture that is walking away from this beautiful, powerful installation, this powerful covenant, this powerful institution of marriage that God created. In the book, he says that in 1980, in the year 1980, only 6% of 40-year-olds, people who had reached the age of 40, only 6% had not ever been married during their lifetime. Today, 25% of 40-year-olds have never been married. Just one of many. You can go online and see all kinds of statistics that tell us how much our culture has abandoned marriage as God designed it. When you think about what makes for a good marriage, though, it's interesting he said that 
its marital quality, not just marriage itself, but a good marriage that produces deep satisfaction in life. When you think of what a good marriage is, it's based in love, and our culture gets that to some degree. Two people that really love each other. But it's based more than that. It's based in a commitment. In the church, we understand that commitment to be a covenant. A commitment not, be, not just between a husband and a wife, but a commitment before God and a commitment to God. And you add that commitment to love and you have a healthy marriage. It's interesting then, it's scripture compares our relationship as the church of Jesus Christ to Christ, our Savior and our Lord. It compares it to a marriage. As a matter of fact, I think rightly we would say that marriage was created to reflect the glory of the relationship between Christ and his church. The more we understand how we relate to Christ in the church, the better we as husbands and wives will be in our marriages. Because that's the original design. That's the love genuine God, the love of God and added to that the commitment of the covenant of grace that's the kind of relationship that we should, we should compare our marriages to to see if they truly are good and healthy remember what Jesus said to his disciples he's the bridegroom the church is the bride Jesus says to his bride the, the disciples if you love me you will keep my commandments Notice he didn't say, if you keep my commandments, I will love you. But so many of us, even in the church, live that way. That God is only going to love us if we keep Christ's commandments. But Jesus says, if you love me, then you'll keep my commandments. Obedience to Christ is the effect of the love and commitment that the covenant of grace has created within us. It's what Paul is trying to teach the Christians in the church in Galatia because they are forgetting that truth. They are forgetting what it means to be saved according to the true gospel. They are forgetting that they can't earn God's love by their good works. And we'll get into this in a moment. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, John says, We love because he first loved us. We obey Christ because we love him, not in order to earn his love, but we obey him because he loved us. And, John says, he loved us before we loved him. There's the gospel. The gospel means that we will grow in obedience. We will grow in our love for Christ. But it's all because he loved us first and accepted us by grace. God's grace produces our love and therefore our obedience. This letter is foundational to the whole New Testament. What's interesting about the letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia is that we're pretty sure that this was the first letter that Paul wrote, or at least the first letter that we have in the New Testament that Paul wrote. It was probably written around 50 AD, written after his first missionary journey. Remember, he was sent out with Barnabas, to preach the gospel, and he went through south-southern Asia Minor. It's the area of the, of the uh, globe that we would call Turkey today. So he went through southern Asia Minor, 
preaching the gospel, leading people to Christ, and establishing churches. And then he returned after his first missionary journey, and somebody came to him, some one or two people probably came to him from the churches in southern Asia Minor, in the area that's the province of the Romans called Galatia, came to him and said, these churches are in trouble. And so Paul writes this letter in response to this troubling news, this actually deadly news that he had received about the churches in Asia Minor in Galatia. What had happened is that after Paul left these churches, false teachers came in. They were Jewish. And they claimed to follow Christ. They claimed to be Christians. But they said, you know, Paul said, all you have to do is have faith in Christ. It's all by grace. And they said, that's wrong. You have to keep the law. And by the law, they mean the moral law. But not the law out of love, keeping the law out of love, but keep, you had to keep the law in order to be accepted by God. In order to be saved, you had to keep the moral law. And you had to keep the ceremonial law, all of the Old Testament law. Even those parts of the Old Testament law that we see are fulfilled in Christ. Things like the dietary laws or the cleansing rituals. These things pointed forward. They were shadows of Christ. And the way that those laws are fulfilled is they're fulfilled when Christ came to bring the reality that they were shadows of. They said you have to keep all the ceremonial laws as well. And they particularly emphasized circumcision because that was the, 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 the sign of belonging to God's people. And so they said in order to be saved, you had to be circumcised and keep all of the ceremonial law and the moral law and in order for God to accept you, in order to be saved. In chapter 2, verse 4, Paul refers to these false teachers as false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Paul is recognizing at the, the crucial threat that these false teachers were bringing to the churches was to steal the freedom. What freedom is he talking about? What's well, that freedom I was just talking about that where God's grace produces love for Christ in us, which leads us to obey Christ. That's freedom. And these false teachers, by bringing in this legalism, this salvation by faith and works, were actually putting them back into slavery, trying to gain God's favor and acceptance by keeping the law, which... The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jews who rejected Christ, they were all in slavery to the flesh because only Christ can pay for sins. You see, they taught that Jesus was the Messiah, but you needed to keep obeying him to remain saved. Like a jealous husband, Christ writes this letter to the churches in Galatia through the Apostle Paul. He's the bridegroom. His bride is being led astray, led away from him, led into denial of him. And so this letter is actually an angry love letter to the churches in Galatia. He chastises the Galatian Christians for listening to these false teachers and in the words of the letter here, quickly deserting him who called you in verse 6. And you see in this letter how angry Paul is toward those false teachers who he says in chapter 1 were preaching a different gospel. 
a gospel that cannot save. And so, as we saw, the rebuke really begins in verse 6, but even the first five verses, before he gets to his exact complaint, his first five verses, you see that these words are pointed and they are terse because Paul is angry. Usually when Paul begins his letters in the New Testament, they begin with a word of encouragement to the churches, a word of love and thankfulness towards them. But this letter, he begins with a different tone, doesn't he? He's urgent, he's agitated. And in these five verses, even though you can kind of read through them quickly and they have familiar language, you can miss what he's try- the points that he's trying to make even as he greets them in, in verses 1 through 5. This letter as a whole has been called Paul's rough draft of the book of Romans. And the reason they call it that is because he basically is trying to teach the same thing that Romans is, but it's much shorter, much more pointed, and much more related to the circumstances of those churches. Whereas Romans... You can imagine in Romans, Paul is just sitting there, sitting back with his coffee and leisurely writing as a theologian and giving a full defense of the gospel and all of its nuances. Here he's writing angry. And so it's quick and it's terse and it's pointed. Chapters 1 and 2 is Paul's defense of his apostleship, and we'll see in a moment why that was so essential. He had to defend himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Chapters 3 and 4 is where he defines the true gospel in detail. He counters what these false teachers have been saying and reminds them of what he had taught them, of what Christ had revealed to him as the true gospel. And then in chapters 5 and 6, he's going to explain how do you live by that gospel? What does it mean to live a faithful, obedient life to Christ in light of the gospel, not as a means to be saved? And so let's start where Paul starts and actually... The first theme he addresses here already in verse 1, his authority to reveal the gospel of God, the true gospel. He says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. You see, these false teachers had to attack Paul in order to attack the gospel because they realized they were contradicting Paul. And so their attempt is to cause the believers in the churches of Galatia to question Paul's calling, to question whether Paul truly was an apostle or not, because if they had questions about Paul as an apostle, then they could start to dismiss Paul's teaching. The word apostle in the Greek word that's translated apostle here means the sent ones, uh, one who is sent. And the New Testament actually uses the word apostle in the original language, uses it two different ways. One in a general way. In other words, anybody who's sent with authority from somewhere else. And so a missionary, today we would have, if we sent a missionary to to West Africa, they're an apostle in the little a sense of apostle. They're sent with authority to preach and teach. But the scriptures make a distinction between those who are capital A apostles those who were called directly by Christ, who were trained directly by Christ, who witnessed the resurrected Christ, they saw him with their eyes, they saw him resurrected in his resurrection body, and they received his call to take the gospel to the nations. 
Those apostles were given the authority, according to John 14 through 16, they were given the authority to speak for God, just the way that the Old Testament prophets spoke for God and gave us God's truth. They were authenticated by God to be his spokesman by their miracles. So in the New Testament, Jesus is authenticated and his apostles are authenticated to bring us the word of God. In, the day, in Hebrews chapter 1, it says, in former days, God spoke to us through the prophets, but in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son, and we have the teachings of Christ and the significance of Christ given to us in the words of those he appointed to speak for him, his ambassadors, the capital A, apostles. They spoke with authority. They spoke as though speaking for God himself. I don't have that kind of authority. I actually have a card in my wallet this says that I am an ordained minister in good standing in the Presbyterian Church in America. This is my credentials. I've never used, I think I used it once to get into a hospital, but I've almost never used, nobody cares. <laughs> but, but all this means is that I have been fully trained and fully examined and fully held accountable to the higher courts of the church to be a trustworthy teacher of the word of God but my authority comes from men in that sense, as they understand the word of God. The difference with the apostles and the prophets is they spoke directly from God. As they wrote the New Testament for us, we can trust that it is God-breathed. It's directly from God. They were his appointed spokesmen. I am held accountable to God's word for what I teach. They teach and they taught and, and preached the word of God directly. And what they wrote was to be taken as God's word. You can see why someone in the first century might have questioned Paul as an apostle. After all, he was not chosen at the beginning of Christ's ministry. He did not train under Christ for three years like the other capital A apostles. He probably did not see the resurrected Christ between his resurrection and his ascension. And so, it'd be easy for a false teacher to make the case that Paul was an illegitimate apostle. He didn't have the qualifications of the other 12. Matter of fact, what was Paul doing when we first meet him in the book of Acts? He was attacking the church. He was persecuting the church. He was binding Christians and taking them off to jail and some of them to execution. So you can see why his credentials might have been questioned. But that's why Paul, every time you see him giving a defense of himself before the, the Roman authorities in the book of Acts or be, before the Jewish authorities, every time he defends himself, he starts by telling his testimony. Yes, I was out there attacking the church. I was persecuting the church. But I met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. And he called me to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He trained me to take the gospel to the Gentiles. I am a legitimate apostle. Matter of fact, the whole book of 2 Corinthians, much of the book of 2 Corinthians, is him defending himself as an apostle of Christ. Because Christ did directly call him. He did encounter Christ face to face on the road to Damascus. And he was called by Christ to go, to be sent as an apostle to preach the gospel. So, 
since he is an apostle, not through men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, he says in verse 11, if you look down there to verse 11, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Everything that Paul preached, taught, everything he wrote that we have in the New Testament hinges on that fact. He received his call to give revelation from Jesus Christ. His gospel is Christ's gospel. If you reject Paul's gospel, you reject Christ's gospel. And that's what these false teachers were doing. He had full authority as an apostle. He was equal to the twelve. When I was, uh, just to underline how important this is, and it continues to be, this has been a battle about Paul that's been going on ever since the days of Paul. Just to show you that how relevant this is, in my first church, I was in a little country town, and all the pastors from all the churches got together for a meeting, and I'm sitting there around the table with all these other pastors, and one of the pastors speaks up and he says, you know, I really, I believe what Jesus taught, but what, you know, with Paul, you got to take him with a grain of salt. Same exact issue that Paul's dealing with in the letter of Galatians. There is no such thing as a red-letter Bible in God's eyes where Jesus' words had any more authority than Paul's words because Paul gave us Jesus' words. Paul's writings are crucial to an understanding of the gospel. Because when you think about it, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what do they tell us primarily? They tell us the historical events. Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He was crucified, but he was raised from the dead. And after he was raised from the dead, he ascended to, to heaven. It's only the rest of the New Testament that we understand the significance of all those historical events. It's important that we acknowledge them as historical events, but we would not fully understand the significance of those events if, Paul, if Christ had not called Paul and Peter and John and the other New Testament writers to explain it all to us. And so Paul's gospel is Christ's gospel. That's his first point. He vigorously defends himself here and throughout the rest of this book, because, not because he's concerned for his own honor and his own reputation. That's why we would defend ourselves. He's concerned for the glory of Christ. He's concerned for the truth of the gospel. He's concerned for the well-being of the churches. That's why he so vigorously defends himself. And so then the second point he makes, which fits with the second theme of this entire letter, is what is the true gospel? What is the true gospel? And notice that he begins where all the other apostles began, the resurrection. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. The resurrection is the most important historical event because every other truth of Scripture hinges upon it. The resurrection is how God the Father affirmed that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. The resurrection confirms that the death of Christ accomplished what Christ and the apostles said it accomplished. In verse 4, it says, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present age. I mean, just think about the importance of the resurrection. 
you know, when you look at the book of Acts and the preaching of the early church, it was always centered around the resurrection of Christ. It wasn't just something we preached about during Advent or during uh, the Lent or during Easter. It wasn't something that was only a one-time-a-year focus of the church. It was every message was focused on the resurrection. Look at the book of Acts again. How often they emphasize that as the central point of the true gospel. It's because the resurrection proves that Jesus Christ was the unique, eternal Son of God that he claimed to be. It proves that he did live a sinless life. He didn't die for his own sins. He died for the sins of others. That's what the resurrection proves. The resurrection proves that he gave himself willingly. It says he gave himself for our sins. He wasn't a victim of the Jewish leadership. He wasn't a victim of Pontius Pilate. He was not a victim of Rome. He was a voluntary sacrifice, the Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what the resurrection proved. And the resurrection proves, in the words of Paul here, that his death and resurrection deliver us from the present evil age. Because Christ is raised from the dead, we have been freed from the power of the world, the power of the flesh, the power of the devil. This is the present evil age. This is the, the world that is under the reign of the evil one. But we have been delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Because we believe in Christ, we have entered into the age to come already. We have already begun to taste the blessings and the powers and the privileges of the age to come when Christ will come finally to bring to fullness the salvation that he accomplished at the cross. Okay, so there's the summary of the true gospel that Paul gives us already just in a couple of verses in his, in his introduction. The gospel is God raised Christ from the dead and he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. That's the gospel. You notice what's missing from that gospel? Anything that we do. None of our works, none of our religiosity factors into the gospel. Matter of fact, you remember over in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes the gospel. He gives, he, he talks about the gospel that he preached in the church in Corinth. And here he gives what the gospel is. Beginning in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1, now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Notice he received this gospel from Christ. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And then interestingly he adds in verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's the gospel. The gospel is the historical fact of what Christ did that enabled God to forgive us and be made right with us. He died for our sins and was raised for our justification. That's the gospel that Paul preached. And it's God's work, not ours. Yes, it produces change in us, absolutely. But the change in us is sanctification, that's not salvation. The gospel is only about what God did for us through his son, Jesus Christ, in his death, resurrection, and ascension. 
Notice that Paul says, it's all according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. It's all God, you know, Christ didn't do something that was opposed to the will of God. He did the will of God. He submitted to the will of God. His will and the Father's will were one because God the Father and God the Son are equal. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. This was the will of God from before the foundation of the world. And so that's why in Romans chapter 9, Paul says it depends not on human will or on our exertion, but on God who has mercy. The gospel has nothing to do with our will or our exertion, our efforts, our good works, our religious acts. It has nothing to do with that. It's all about what God, the will of God the Father through Jesus Christ to save us through his redemptive work. And so then what's the result of the Father's will and the saving work of the Son? What is the result? Verse 3, grace to you and peace. Now again, you, we tend, especially if you've been reading the New Testament for very long, you tend to skip over that lightly. Oh, grace and peace. That's kind of like you, you, you or I saying to each other, hey, hi, how you doing? How's your day been? You know, we take it as just kind of a cliche greeting, but that's, Paul would never use the powerful words of grace and peace in such a light way. He would never do that. When Paul talks about grace, he's talking about God's undeserved favor for sinners. That we were his enemies. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. We were his unworthy enemies, and he gave us salvation as a free gift. We deserved, what we deserved was God's wrath for eternity. What we received is eternal life in his kingdom. That's grace. Peace, Paul uses the Greek word for peace here that corresponded to the Old Testament Hebrew word shalom. And I love the word shalom because that is the result of Christ's saving work. Peace, according to scripture, is not just the absence of conflict or the absence of suffering. Peace is complete wholeness in every aspect of life. Peace is having inwardly and outwardly life as God originally intended it before sin entered into the world. It's the restoration of Eden. It's where peace and just, where, where righteousness and justice reign in every aspect of life. No more sin. No more suffering. Complete, total love for God and for each other. The world as God originally intended before sin destroyed it all. The world that he has promised to those who believe in their son Jesus Christ. That he will restore that world. That shalom, that Eden will be restored. And it will be better than the original Eden. You know why? Because of the work of Christ, we can never lose it. It's assured. He will hold us fast. That's the peace that Jesus was talking about when he said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. God's grace, his undeserving love for sinners, his grace creates peace with God because of the redeeming work of Christ. And that peace with God, no longer hostile to God, no longer alienated from God, but being at peace with God, experiencing the shalom of God, leads to that inner peace 
that peace which surpasses all understanding that Paul talks about in Philippians 4, which leads to peace with others, even in this fallen world, while we wait for Christ to return. So when Paul says grace and peace to you, that's what he's talking about. This is all about the true gospel. And I hope that as we work our way through the book of Galatians, you're not going to start to tune it out and say, oh, I knew the, know the gospel. You do not know the gospel. You do not know the depth of the gospel. You do not know the immensity of the gospel. You do not know how life-transforming the gospel is. We have only scratched the surface this, to this point in our lives. There is so much there. And what I have found is that understanding the true gospel, it's kind of like when Jesus said, he talked about discipleship, following him. He said, it's like two different paths. There's a wide path that's easy to traverse, easy to walk on, the wide path. That's the way of the world. And then there's this narrow path that's difficult, that involves enduring the hostility of the world, enduring suffering. And as you walk that narrow path, I've, in my own mind, I envision, as I think about the history of the church and all the struggles we have to stay true to the true gospel, is that on each side of that path, there are deep, deadly chasms. On the one side, there's a deeply, deep, deadly chasm called licentiousness. And the church can easily fall into that chasm, wander off of the path of the true gospel into licentiousness. How does it work? Well, you say, well, you know what? Christ died for my sins. He died for my sins of the past. He died for the sins I'm committing now, and he died for the sins I'm going to commit in the future. And that's true. But in our sinfulness, our remaining sinfulness, we say, well, then it doesn't matter how I live. Oh, yeah, I know that's wrong, but that's okay. Christ died for that. And so you begin to excuse things that are displeasing to God, that are denying to your faith, and you start to fall into licentiousness. But the other side of that path of the true gospel is this deep, dark, deadly chasm that's called legalism. That you stop trusting fully in Christ and you start trusting in your own efforts. You start thinking, well, you know, I'm not so bad. Yeah, I'm okay. Oh, you know what? You know, I go to church every Sunday. I read my Bible. You know, I don't murder anybody. I don't rob banks. And you start to trust in your works like the Pharisees did. And legalism has always been a problem in the church. Where you not only live that way, but you start to judge your brothers and sisters that way. Well, you can't be a Christian because you don't live according to my standards of what my laws are for my life. On the one hand, you're saying that Christ's death is not enough to change me. That the, re that the grace and peace that's promised in the, in the gospel is not real that I can go ahead and live, the, live in the darkness of the world and still claim to follow Christ. On the other, in the other deadly error, the false teaching, is that you start to trust in your own efforts to be right with God. And in that case, you're also saying the cross of Christ isn't enough. Yeah, Jesus had to die for sins, but I need to do more than that. I need to add to that. And just think about that. The cross of Christ is not enough. Can you think of anything more blasphemous? the horror and the beauty of all that happened at the cross, and to say, that's not enough to save me. Let me come back to this marriage analogy as I wrap this up. The key to living by the true gospel is to live with an understanding that you are married to the bridegroom that the scriptures reveal to us, Jesus Christ. 
The church is the bride, Christ is the bridegroom. Our relationship with him was based in a sovereign divine covenant, the covenant of grace, which God planned before the foundation of the world and he implemented through the saving work of Christ. And we, in that covenant relationship with our Savior and Lord, as he's the bridegroom, we're the bride, we obey because we love him. And that gets at, that analogy gets at the true motivation for seeking to be holy, for seeking to be righteous. It's not about trying to save yourself. It's not about trying to keep your salvation. It's about loving Christ. In some marriages, I've heard talk about a husband or a wife giving each other a hall pass, a temporary permission to go and cheat on the marriage, to go sleep with somebody that you find attractive. If you're in a good marriage and your husband comes to you and offers you a hall pass, why in the world, of course you're not in a good marriage if your husband offers that, but, <laughs> but why would you want one? You're giving up this wonderful, beautiful, glorious thing that God created called marriage and you're enjoying all the wonderful fruits of it. Why would you give that up to go enjoy a moment of pleasure that's passing and gone? Why? It, just, it doesn't make any sense to you. And so somebody who's in that deep chasm of licentiousness, you're like, why? Christ saved you. He, he died for you. He gave you new life. Why would you give that up to go back and live in sin again? It's foolishness if you see your relationship with Christ as a covenant like marriage. On the other side, though, you, don't, you can't live your life as a legalist. John Piper tells the story, or he actually uses this analogy a lot. He, he says, imagine that a husband goes and buys his wife a dozen roses. And he brings them home to her. And he gives them to her, and she says, oh, those are beautiful. I love these. What's the occasion? Why did you give these to me? And, he's, and the husband says, well, that's my duty. I'm your husband. He says, the wife would just throw the flowers at him if that's what he said. I mean, that's like a legalist trying to say, I am going to go to church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to witness. I'm going to try to not lie today or cheat or steal because that's my duty. Because that's what I have to do to keep a right relationship with the Lord. But how often do you live that way? No, it's a covenant of grace. It's grace that produces love in you, which produces obedience. And obedience motivated by love is the only kind of obedience that tru truly glorifies the Lord. At the end of the book of Galatians, Paul's going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. That's that heart of love towards Christ that he's promised he's going to give to us. We gain it more and more as we learn to trust him and love him more through the course of our lives. We become more like him because we love him, not because we're trying to work to gain his favor. That's the gospel, and that's the beauty, the freedom that we're going to be talking about in the book of Galatians. Why would you give up your freedom to go back to slavery? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul. Thank you for appointing him, giving him this revelation from above, 
to enable us to more deeply understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Father, we are by nature either into licentiousness or legalism. And the church has been dogged by these false teachings throughout its history. Lord, keep us focused upon the glory of Christ, deepen our love for him. And Lord, we do want to be more obedient. We want to be more righteous because that is true freedom. Lord, please continue this work in our lives. We pray in Christ's name, amen.